Hey everyone, this is Dan Blewett, and uh, we're back here for another episode. This is episode 49 of Dear Baseball Gods. So we missed last week, uh, and I apologize for that. Uh, I'm still, and I say it every, I've said it every week for the last month, that I'm struggling to adapt to my summer schedule, but really I just need to have uh, something better to, to plan this out. So what I'm doing is today is a Monday night, and I'm going to hammer out a bunch of videos and hopefully two episodes, and we'll see if we can uh, begin a little more regular schedule. So... A couple of co- topics I'm going to cover tonight. Number one, uh, how it has gone this season for my team not using signs. So we don't give any signs from third base. And that's uh, obviously not a typical thing. I think we're one of probably the very few teams to do something like that. And we have a specific reason for it. But I'm just going to kind of give you an update of how I feel like it's gone and whether I feel like signs are useful in baseball. Number two, we're going to talk about excuses and self-handicapping and other things that are pretty common in baseball and how we can kind of avoid those. And lastly, I'm going to talk about more about routine and why it's so critical and how hitters and pitchers and really any athlete, I think they're made or broken in their pregame routine and in their practice routine more than anything else and how why it's so critical to reinforce good habits and not to overcoach it, but to let them understand what it is that they're trying to accomplish and why a routine is so important. Lastly, a couple news, new ways. So if you want to help me and sponsor this show, sponsor some of my content and help it get out there farther, I have a new thing. It's called Patreon. Um, Patreon, you can become a patron of my podcast, of my videos, and it's just a way where you can sort of sponsor and subscribe to the show for a dollar or $50 an episode, whatever you want, anything in between and you'll get t-shirts, other stuff, some of my online digital products, things you might already uh, use from me anyway. You can then get them if you're interested. So if you want to sponsor the show, go to my Patreon link. It's in the description on the iTunes uh, details, and it's also in the description of these YouTube videos. So if you're compelled to do that, you can find shirts like this new one that I've created on my new web store here. Uh, Also things like my Shameless Baseball is Boring mug. some of this stuff is just kind of funny for me to do. It doesn't cost me anything. And it's, again, it's just a way to, uh, I don't know, bring some of my eccentricity to uh, my website and my podcast. But again, if you feel compelled to sponsor or if you just want to leave a review or leave me a comment, I greatly appreciate it because I'm always looking for good podcast topics because really this is just for the benefit of players, parents, and coaches out there. So first topic that I'd like to address, um, why have we not used signs and how has that experiment gone? So my rationale for not using third base signs are twofold. Number one, because I think players, when they're forced to make a decision versus having the decision made for them, it's going to force them to think harder about why they're doing what they're doing. Number two, because I think if players start to do that, that signs are almost irrelevant. Now there's a lot of different uses for signs, but I think that, when we're constantly waiting for the steal sign, constantly waiting for the bunt sign, hit and run sign, whatever, I think we're missing a really good teaching opportunity when we're forcing kids to, and when I say kids, again, I'm generalizing 10 to 22, really. I think we give them an opportunity to learn from failure and to really have to think hard about the decisions that they're making on the baseball field. And the more they think hard, the faster those decisions get made. So number one, the common signs that you would give as a third base coach, number one, steal, bunt, number two, or number two, bunt, number three, hit and run, number four, safety squeeze, number five, uh, suicide squeeze, number six, take. Those are pretty much 
all of it. Uh, obviously, like, you know, you can wipe off, all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm not going to get into calling pitches because I'll get into, get into that in another episode. I also do not call pitches because, again, if I'm going to call every pitch for our pitcher and catcher, I'm not sure how they're going to learn to do that on their own. But I'm aware that's a common thing pretty much all the way up the ladder until pro baseball. So, number one, I've written on this. I don't believe in the hit and run. I believe the hit and run is such a narrowly effective strategy that it can easily take the bat out of a hitter's hands when he gets a pitch he can drive. I think it can also make a and a bat extremely difficult for a hitter who might otherwise have a good plan. So when you hit and run, it's typically a situation where you have a contact hitter up and obviously we're looking for a fastball count and we're usually going at one out. So we are trying to just obviously hit the ball the opposite way. So if it's a right-handed hitter, he's going the opposite way, left-handed hitter, he's pulling it to the second baseman side. And we're just trying to hit it there because as the runner's stealing, the second baseman's going to cover second and it's going to leave that whole second base side vacated. So an easy ground ball can become a hit. The problem here, number one, when a pitcher throws a pitch, huge variability about where it's going to go. Whether he tries to throw low and away, tries to throw a curveball for a called strike, whether it actually makes it to that location, there's just huge, huge amounts of variability. He may or may not do that. And depending on the quality of the hitter, he might get a pitch middle in for a righty that he can just drive into the left side pull gap, right into the left center. And now if we do a hit and run on that pitch, he has to, instead of driving a pitch that could potentially do damage, get us a couple runs, he has to then sort of give up and try to inside out that pitch the other way just so that we can play for like a stolen single. So there's obviously better times and worse times. If you have a very erratic pitcher, it's going to be much tougher to hit and run. And I'm sure a lot of good coaches wouldn't call the hit and run when there's a very erratic pitcher who might throw the ball any single, any, you know, any direction. When there's a pitcher who's very consistently fastballs low and away to righties, it makes a little more sense because we have a little more idea that he might throw a fastball low and away that a righty can easily hit on the ground to the right side. So I'm not saying that all, all situations are created equal because they're definitely not. Uh, but the best case scenario on a hit and run is they hit the ball to the right side, we get a free single, and the runner goes first to third. That's the best possible outcome. Now there's a lot of other outcomes such as you pop the ball up, probably a double play, uh, you pull the ball left side, that's a good outcome, actually, because what might be a double play ball now becomes only a throw to first base for an out, so the runner advances to second. Uh, line drive is a sure double play. Um, and then also forces hitters to swing at a pitch they might otherwise not be able to swing at. So maybe there's a fastball up middle of the zone. They have to try to hit on the ground on the right side. And instead of driving again, driving that pitch, they just instead of pop it up or they hit a weak ground ball to somewhere in the infield. So I'm not sure how beneficial a hit-and-run really is. Uh, it's a, you know, at, again, at best, you get a single and a first a third out of it. Now, if you held your ground and hit a single to the right side, you'd probably get first and third anyway. So it's not like that's, this is an outcome that you can never actually achieve. You could actually achieve that outcome with a typical single to the right side, uh, even if you just let the hitter swing. So I understand there's a lot of good coaches out there who still use it. Um, I just personally don't see the benefit. I don't see the, the risk-reward when, again, put the ball in the air, probably double play, uh, force a hitter to get out of his comfort zone and maybe not drive a pitch he could drive. How good are hitters at hitting the opposite way? Obviously, again, you can put the situation on at different times, but I don't see it that as that important. 
Number two, bunting. Um, at youth baseball, bunting is much more effective than it is at college pro baseball, where if you put a bunt down, a sacrifice bunt, I'm talking about not bunting for hit, you put a sacrifice down in college or pro baseball, the outcome is relatively certain they're going to be out, and you're going to move the base runner up one base while trading one out. And sabermetric data has proven pretty well that trading an out for one base is almost never a positive trade. It's almost always puts you underwater, so that you're actually expecting less runs in that inning than if you had just stayed put and kept your out and played your chances. So giving up an out for a run, except when it's like maybe the winning run or the tying run in the end of the game, in which case that will actually increase your win expectancy a little bit, almost doesn't, almost never makes sense. So for us, sacrifice bunting. I have not sacrificed bunting once all year, and we'll probably make it to the whole season where we don't sacrifice bunt at all. And so then, okay, bunt sign. So we're not going to sacrifice bunt sign. So if we then uh, put on a bunt for a hit, when do I need to put on a bunt for a hit sign? Well, uh, number one, it needs to be a kid who knows to, how to bunt well, who's, good at, who's confident in bunting. So do I need to tell a kid that he's confident in bunting? No. We've talked about this. My kids, there's a select couple of them who feel good about bunting. So, okay, all right, if you guys feel confident in bunting, you're a candidate to bunt for a hit. So if you're a candidate to bunt for a hit, so I'm talking to three of you now or four of you, uh, when should you bunt for a hit? Well, not when it's like runners in scoring position because we need you to bat them home. Um, not when the infield is playing in or the corners are playing in. But basically, if there's a situation where we need a base runner, you know, there's a runner on first, or there's a runner on second, uh, and that's probably the only situations there where their bases are clear, or uh, then the third baseman or the first baseman is playing too deep. They're playing pretty far back. We can then go ahead, okay, I'm a guy who's good at bunting. I recognize the third baseman or first baseman are playing pretty far back, where if I put a decent bunt down, there's no shot they'll get me out. So this looks like a good time for me to bunt. Uh, there's not guys in scoring position where I could bat them home, which, again, run on second. That can be a good time if we get him to third and we get the runner to first, the hitter to first. Uh, but if it's like second and third or first and second, that's not a good time to bunt. We need a bat a ball in most cases there. So uh, if the situation is right, again, like base is empty, runner on first or runner on second only, uh, and you're a good bunter, and first and third baseman, depending which way, which way you want to bunt it, are playing deep, all the conditions are met for you to go ahead and lay down a, a bunt for a hit. Do I need to tell you that? I can recognize that situation just the same as our hitter can if he knows how to look for it. So if I've already taught him how to look for it, do I need to give him the sign? I don't. So and again, in that situation, we don't need to, we're not going to sacrifice bunt, and I don't need to give him a sign if he's taught well enough when he should bunt. So there we go. Uh, now, obviously, as a coach, I'm there to help spot things that they may not spot, right? That's part of my job. So if I say, oh, man, this is a good situation, guy's back, the situation's right, we've got a good bunter up, he should probably bunt. Well, maybe he's just not feeling good about bunting that day, or maybe he just wants to swing away. Uh, or maybe this pitcher, like, has a pretty nasty slider, or curveball, throws pretty hard, and my guy's not super comfortable with bunting, I don't know that as a coach. So if I do put on the bunt sign for him, I don't know that he's not super comfortable putting that bunt down. So I'm probably putting him in a worse position than he otherwise would be if I just let him play it out and say, am I comfortable? All right, the situation's ready. Am I comfortable bunting or am I not comfortable bunting? If I am, I'll bunt. If I'm not, I won't. So I don't want to force him to bunt if he doesn't feel comfortable. Then as we go to stealing, same thing. 
there are stealing situations and there are not stealing situations. So stealing third base with two outs, stealing third base with no outs, those are bad stealing situations. We've talked about that as a team. If a guy steals a base in either of those situations and is safe or out, I will still let him know that it was a bad time to go and that he should not have done that. Um, runner on first with no outs can be a good time to steal depending on who's up, who's not, what the score is, all that. Runner on first with two outs, probably a good time to steal if you're capable of stealing also depending on who's up. If it's the nine hitter who's up and the top of the lineup is coming up, probably best to stay put, let that guy hit, and we start fresh with one through one through three on uh, the next inning. Um, but if it's like the two hitters up, it might be a good time to steal if we have two outs because you get to second, now a single from him, you know, high-quality hitter, steals a run before the inning ends. Uh, and if he's out, we still have two, three, four coming up, right? Good time to steal. Runner on second, stealing third with one out, good time to steal because now we can hit a deep fly ball, he scores on a sack fly. If the situation's right, ground ball to the middle infield also scores the guy. So there are good times and there are not good times. And if you teach your players well enough, they can identify them on, on their own. And then also, I don't want to tell a guy to steal when he doesn't feel like he has a good read on the pitcher or he's just not comfortable with this pitcher yet. He hasn't like had enough at-bats. He hasn't watched him enough. And maybe he's not, his legs don't feel great that day. Whatever it is, maybe the dirt at first base is like kind of soft and he feels like he can't push off. I don't want to set him up for failure by giving him a sign, not knowing what his mental condition is on that day. So all those different factors are if he can recognize the situation, he feels good about stealing, he feels he can get a good jump on the pitcher, then he should go. And I don't need to tell him that. As long as the situation's right, then he should be fine to have green light or red light and green light or red light himself. We've also talked about guys who can't steal bases, who are just too slow. We've said, hey, you don't really have the green light from us. Um, unless you're absolutely certain that you can steal the base because the pitcher is like it's forgotten about you and it's a good stealing situation, then you shouldn't go. But we've also had some of our really slow guys steal bases because they've read the pitcher well and gotten a massive jump and walked into second base or third base, and that's completely fine. So we don't really need the steal sign considering that's kind of how we have done things. Suicide squeeze, safety squeeze. I'm just not into it. I'm not doing it. So don't need that sign either. Um, I just think that in that situation, I think there's just a lot of risk and reward that I'm not personally sold on as far as squeezing or safety squeezing. I think we can try to bat that run home. You know, if we have one out, I'm pretty confident that run's going to score from third 65% of the time. I'm going to let them swing. Uh, so in general, those are most of the scenarios. You know, as far as me telling a guy to take, giving him the take sign, that can be beneficial sometimes when hitters just get a little over anxious they get a little bit excited about a situation like oh they're winning runs on third or you know we're down two runs but we feel like we have a good chance you can kind of calm a hitter down and just sort of get him into relax by giving the take sign and also just reminding hitters what they're supposed to be doing in case the game is speeding up and they're just excited or you're in a rally whatever it is um, helping them rem remind them by giving them a sign those are valid reasons to give signs but we just chose not to do that so to this point in the season, we're about two-thirds through our season, and we're 14 new baseball, uh, we've had seemingly no ill effects. The guys that steal are safe almost all the time. The guys who don't steal typically don't steal unless they're going to be safe. Um, we haven't lost any outs because of hit and runs. We haven't safety squeezed. We haven't bunted for a hit except when we've been safe. I think our bunt for hit rate has been extremely high we only do it when we're pretty sure we can get away with it. Um, and then uh, 
So as far as all that goes, to me, it's been a pretty successful experiment. Every time we're out doing a dumb thing, stealing a, the wrong base at the wrong time, we've talked about it. And they've gotten good about not doing it again, about getting leads, about getting jumps, all that sort of stuff. We're not safe 100% of the time when we steal. But my team has been extremely good about only stealing bases when they should try to steal bases. We haven't got, gotten caught stealing third with two outs or stealing third with no outs. Um, we've also talked to guys about when you should go for a triple with one out is the best time to go for a triple. Even if it's, you know, maybe you should always go for a triple if it's a clear standup. But if it's not clear that you're going to make it to third base, if it could be a play at third base, if there's not one out, you should just stay put at second base because with no outs, you'll get manufactured home. With two outs, a single is going to score you from second the same as it is from third. So as far as like guys understanding when they should go to third base or not, because that's really the bigger issue, um, we've been relatively good about that. We're not perfect as third base coaches all the time either, um, but our guys are starting to get like the value of third base. And really that's what all this stuff comes down to is what is the value of the next base and what is the value of the out that I might make in trying to get to that base or putting on a bunt or whatever. And if you teach your players the right way about you know, the value of giving up an out for one base or risking an out for a base, uh, then they start to get it. And every time if you reinforce them, it seems like it's worked pretty well. So this is one team, this is just my team, it's just the way that we've done it. Uh, but it's been seemingly very successful. Like I, I don't feel like we've missed having signs from third base. I don't care if other teams that you know might know us in the area see this podcast because they're going to have no way to steal our signs. They're going to have no way to know when we're bunting and when we're stealing because it's not coming from us. It's coming from our players. And in general, they've done a really good job, even just at 14 years old, of figuring out, you know, because they've been reinforced and taught when to go and when not to. And I still think that when you give people free reign to do certain things within reason, you educate them as best you can, then you let them fail on their own, they're going to learn a lot better. And when they screw up, like, hey, we've talked about that. Why did you steal third with two outs? You killed a rally for us. They're going to remember that next time more than, you know, I gave them a sign. They just were out and that's sort of that. So it gives them responsibility for their own actions, which I think helps them become better ball players. So that's just a little, uh, just a little recap. Again, we thought this was going to be a decent idea. And now that we're pretty much through our season, I think it's worked out pretty well. We're probably long-term, we're going to be still pretty minimal on signs. I'm not saying we might be zero signs organization-wide because um, I don't want to be dogmatic about anything. Like there's, there's a time for them and there's maybe a time where you don't need them. Uh, so I don't want to say that we'll never use signs, but it's been a relatively successful uh, experiment this year. And I'd urge other teams to try it. I think if you give your players more rope and you talk to them and you teach them and you try to educate them why they're doing what they're doing and let them make their decisions, they're just going to be better decision makers on the field. Because if you take decisions out of people's hands, and the best analogy I can give is, is Google Maps. I remember back before Google Maps, even when it was just MapQuest, when you print out directions, and that was great, you had, still had to like understand, like pay attention to the roads. You had to pay attention to all this stuff. And you learned the map as you drove around town, as you went to a friend's house or you went to a, a restaurant. When you had to navigate yourself and pay attention to directions, you learned the routes, you learned the town. Now when you use Google Maps, you're just listening to prompts. And when you get lost or if it's not there, you're like, 
how the heck do I get home? You have no idea because you weren't really paying attention. You weren't really making any decisions in getting yourself to or from that place. And I sort of regret that. I think, you know, as a guy who lived in a different town for most of, you know, the last seven or eight years, you know, I moved to a town, played baseball there for the summer, come home. It took me less time to get to know the town before Google Maps, before I was just being told how to go left turn, left turn, right, and 500 feet turn left. Before Google Maps, I feel like I, I learned the roads and the system and got oriented north, south, west, east, like where I was with towns a lot faster than when I was with Google Maps because after that, it was just like, I don't know where I am, but I'll just push the button and listen and I'll get there when I get there. So I think that's kind of the same thing with, with, with sports, not just baseball, where if you let them make the decisions and you force them to be involved in the decisions, then they're going to learn a little bit faster. So that's, uh, that's the bunning experiment. Okay, so I want to talk about self-handicapping and I want to talk about excuses and I want to talk about basically what matters and what doesn't as far as bringing injuries and all this other stuff to a coach's attention because it's, uh, you know, like as a coach, you want to, number one, be informed and you want your players to feel comfortable to come to you with any sort of problem, whether it's like, hey, my ankle's bothering me or my shoulder's bothering me or whatever it is because you don't want small injuries to come big injuries. And that's what happens when players don't tell you they have something going on. But at the same time, there's a lot of little things that go on that just either have a black and white response. And semi-recently, this was brought up where one common excuse that I heard numerous times over the last two weeks, I don't know why, was I can't see the ball. I'm like, why did that ball drop? Or why did you get such a slow break on that ball in the outfield? They said, well, I couldn't see it. Why did that, you know, like, why didn't you go for that pop-up? I couldn't see it. And my question then is, well, do I need to take you out of the game? If, I mean, if you can't see the ball in the air, should I take you out of the game? The answer is no. I said, well, if I shouldn't, if you can't see the ball, but yet I shouldn't take you in the game, what's going to change? Like, can you see the ball next time? They're like, I'll, I'll figure it out. Well, then if you could figure it out, was there ever really a problem? Or did you just, maybe you were kind of lazy and lost focus. Maybe you were like looking over in the stands or you're just, I don't know, just somewhere in la-la land where you didn't see that particular one because it was your fault not because of some fault with your vision, with your retina, with your corneas or whatever, uh, or the conditions. And the other thing is, and this happened last year, we had a kid who just was striking out every at bat, one of our older teams. And I said, Hey, like, I, I know you're struggling a lot. Like what's going on? I mean, can you give me any insight? Like, I don't know how to help you. And he said, well, I just, I can't see the ball. I can't see the ball. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Do I, do we need to, do you need to go to the eye doctor? And he said, no. I'm like, well, is it, it's not your swing mechanics. Like your swing mechanics are okay. You're just not hitting the ball. Like you're not even close sometimes. So he's like, I just can't see the ball. I'm like, well, if you can't see the ball, then I probably need to take you out of the lineup, right? Like, I, I mean, if it's not a physical mechanical swing problem and you say you don't want to go to the eye doctor, then you're just not good at baseball. Like, am I, am I hearing you right? And I like didn't really get a straight answer. I just... I don't know what it was because it wasn't just like that particular field. Other hitters were obviously hitting the ball and scoring runs. It was really just him. So the question was, is this an excuse? Is this 
like a cry for help? Is this actually a vision problem? Like you need to go see the eye doctor for, uh, what is it? And basically the thing with excuses is, and I talked to a couple of my players about this recently where they say, Hey, like this happened or I'm feeling this. I'm like, okay, well, do I need to take you out of the game? No, 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 no. I'm like, well, then why'd you tell me about it? Uh, did you tell me about it just to make an excuse for yourself or does your knee actually hurt or does it not hurt? Like if it does hurt, I'll take you out of the game and there's no fault on you for it. But if you can't do the job, then I have to take you out of the game. So can you do the job? Are you actually in pain? Can you actually not see the ball or whatever the excuse was? It's not always like a pain thing. It's sometimes just like a, I didn't see it or I'm losing track of it or uh, whatever it is. The question is, okay, if it's a medical thing, should I take you out of the game? If the answer is no, uh, well then are you, are you going to hurt yourself? Is this an injury that's going to get worse? No, 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 no. Well then what is it? If it's not, if it's not an actual injury, if it's not a, doesn't require medical attention. If you're f- really fine to stay in the game, like truly fine to stay in the game, like you're not lying to me and you're not going to injure yourself by going out and putting more force through a joint or muscle that's having a problem, then why did you tell me? More often than not, it just seems like they're trying to like either self-handicap, which means they're just giving you an excuse now for future poor performance, which is a very common thing. I mean, a lot of pitchers before they go out, even in the very high levels of pro ball, one of my teammates who pitched in the major leagues was a chronic like self just like be the first guy to say, oh, I don't feel very good today. Like, oh man, my arm. Just like make it very known to everyone that his arm felt like crap. So then if he pitched like crap that night, I guess he already had an excuse lined up and he pitched great then everyone thought he was like a tough guy or something. I don't know. He like, it was a win-win for him complaining about his arm before he'd pitch. Um, but the reality is that no one really cares at a certain level of baseball. So say you got called up to the major leagues and there's two catchers and catcher one says, you know, pop-up drops and they say, Hey, what happened? Oh, I couldn't see it. Like, do you need, do we need to call the team? eye doctor. Oh no, no, no. Well then catch the ball. Okay. Like that's, that's all there is to it. Well, okay. So you don't need medical attention. You couldn't see the ball. Well, okay. Well, our other catcher seems to be able to see the ball and catches the ball when it comes down to him. So we're going to put him and we're going to release you. We're going to send you back to AAA or whatever it is. There's just like the certain, there's a certain point where it's like, do you have something wrong with you? And if you do, that's fine. And that's a genuine excuse and a genuine valid reason that we should get you looked at and get you help, take you out of the lineup, whatever it is so that the team can be better, so that you can be better and reach your full performance. But if there's literally no reason, if you're telling me that you can't see the ball or that you're hurt or that something's bothering you, but you don't want anything to do with it, you you can continue to want to play third base or first base or second base, and no, no, I'm fine, I can play play fine, like don't take me out of the game, I'm good to go, then why did you tell me that you had a problem? If you're fine, then you're fine. If you're not fine, then you're not fine. And with pitchers especially, it's pretty cut and dry, especially in like minor league baseball and independent baseball, especially independent baseball where like, I mean, no one really cares about your health. Like you can either pitch or you can't pitch. That's really all there is to it. And you learn that after like your first year, there's no like, hey, I don't feel good today. Or like, hey, my elbow kind of hurts. Because if you're like, they're like, okay, your elbow kind of hurts. So so you're down today? No, I can pitch. Well, then why did you come into my office? If you can pitch, then just shut up and just go pitch. If you can't go pitch, then tell me you're injured and I'll put you on the disabled list and then I will find a replacement for you. And then when you come back, you can fight for your job back. 
you know, with this new guy who comes in who might be better than you. That's sort of how it works. So the question is, are you hurt and can you play? Or do you just want to tell me that you're kind of hurt for unreally, unknown reasons, really? Uh, I don't know. And that's just kind of how it goes. So sometimes, that's, again, that's self-handicapping. Sometimes it's just being just making excuses. Sometimes it's trying to make yourself feel better when you just didn't play that well. Because, you know, we had scrimmages recently and a couple of our outfielders were just getting super late breaks on, on, on like, routine fly balls. And I just, I asked, I'm like, what's going on? Like, I feel like you're, the ball is halfway there and you're not, then just starting to move. And, like, I, I can't see it. I'm like, well, it's a normal, it's a normal, like, sunny June day. Like, what do you want, like, if you can't see the ball, I got to put someone else out there. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like it's the sky is like half blue and half filled with clouds. It's, it's 12 o'clock PM. These are like baseball conditions. If you can't see the ball, like, I understand if that's like really truly what's happening. But at the same time, I don't care if you can't see the ball, if you can't see the ball in like a normal day playing the outfield, then you just can't play baseball. And I'll just put someone out there who can hopefully probably see the baseball. Cause it seems like the other team, other team reacts just fine and our other outfielders also seem to react just fine. So it seems like it's a you problem. And uh, I don't know what to tell you because there's not a medical issue. And this is like a typical condition under which you would play baseball. Then you're expected to perform. I don't really know. And uh, it's been interesting dealing with younger players. I've been a coach or, or assistant coach with all of our teams at 18U, 17U, 16U, 15U, 14U over the last couple of years and you hear different things out of all of them, different pain tolerances, different failure tolerances, different excuses, different ways of, you know, rallying each other, different ways of uh, just coming back from poor performances. People put their head down, keep their heads up. It's just like so many different personalities, you know, in addition to my career as a player and all the guys that I had in my dugout and played against. And um, it's just interesting to see the difference, but as the, as the level goes higher, Guys make less and less excuses, number one, and they, uh, they almost never make excuses that don't seem to impact their playing time. And I'll give you a story as I wrap up because my playing career ended on a weird combination of like not excuses but miscommunication. It was really, it was really strange. And I've told the story before, but it's worth repeating here now because basically my last season – I started the season, this I started the year with shoulder pain. Like I woke up on opening day and like I like could lift my shoulder but my my arm, but I had a plan. I was like I'm going to take my medication. I'm going to do all these shoulder exercises. I'm going to fix my mechanics during the season. No one has to know about it. And by time I like get through all this stuff, I do some more different shoulder stuff and I take my meds, that calms it down and then I fix my mechanics a little bit. I'm going to be healthy and, and no one would ever know, you know, they're none the wiser. That was my plan. That was a legitimate plan. Obviously, like if you're hurt and they give you rehab, that's pretty much what happens, right? They make a plan for you. They give you medication. It all just sorts of work out. You just get a little bit better each day. And then while still playing every day, and then at some point, four to eight weeks later, you're like, fine. So, uh, that was all fine while I was still pitching well, because the first like three weeks I was still pitching well. Then I started, my performance started to degrade and I was getting treatment, so it was like somewhat known that like something was going on, but I wasn't really talking about it because I didn't really care to talk about it. It wasn't like complaining to other guys to make sure everyone knew that my arm hurt was going to like affect me or my performance or how they felt about me. It just like didn't really matter. So I didn't like make it very well known. If someone asked me, I'd tell them, but 
like who cares if my shoulder hurts a lot or a little or whatever, I was still pitching. So if I was still pitching, my condition didn't matter. Cause again, you're either like hurt or you're healthy. Like either you can pitch for us. And if you pitch, you're expected to pitch at hundred percent. If you can't pitch, then you're on the disabled list. And if you're not on the disabled list, then you're essentially hundred percent. There's no like going out there 90%, 95%. Even if you actually are, you're expected to perform at hundred percent. That's the standard. And I knew that. So I chose not to go on the disabled list. I chose not to complain about it and chose not to like tell everyone about it. I just chose to like, my shoulder feels how it feels. I'm going to get treatment. I'm going to do what I need to do. Even if other people see me getting treatment, which had to happen after a couple weeks of me kind of trying to keep it under wraps, it's just like whatever. So I didn't perform well after the first couple weeks. I started, my performance started to slip and I started to not really get people out. And uh, I was kind of faced with a crossroads and I talked to my manager one day after a game and I'm like, look, my shoulder has not been feeling good, but I've thought really hard about my performance and I don't think my shoulder is the reason. I just think I've lost a little bit of an edge pitching for this team and sort of like being comfortable with the role that I earned. And, uh, you know, I feel like I'm just trying to, re- I'm just trying to repeat last year's all-star performance because I was an all-star the previous year. I feel like I'm repeating, I'm just trying to repeat last year's performance instead of being like super hungry to be better than I ever was, which was my attitude every other prior year. And I like, I just, I'm like, my shoulder's not great, but that's not an excuse for how I've been pitching. And I really just think it's like a mental thing that I feel like I've figured it out and I'm going to go out and pitch a little more aggressively than I have been. And I think that will all correct itself. And he said, okay, like I, thanks for talking to me. Like, okay. So that was genuinely how I felt about it. Um, and then over the next three weeks, I continued to pitch worse and worse and worse to the point where I finally got, they traded me away, which was essentially like releasing me. And then when they traded me, I, I wanted to start fresh. The other team didn't know about my shoulder because when, after that, what I, this is what I didn't know. After I had that conversation with my manager, he said, okay, like he's just going through a normal kind of thing that guys go through where they're not hundred percent, but they're still fine to find a pitch. Not that big a deal. You know, blew it, talked to me about it, whatever. So when they trade me, that was kind of the report they got that I'm like, maybe like not perfect, but still good to go. And I called them and explained, Hey, I really want to get healthy as I start this with, as I start my season with you guys. Uh, and I really think I need some, like to see a doctor and like get some stronger medication because I really hadn't seen a doctor at that point and they didn't really give me much. And it was like pretty bad. And they're like, Oh, we didn't know that. We thought you were just like, they said, you're like kind of having like a little thing, but we thought you were pretty much healthy. I'm like, no, that's not really, that's not really the case. Cause I kind of hit it. And so my manager then calls me back after they talked and he's like, Hey, what are you, what's uh what's this report I hear about you being hurt and telling the other team that you're hurt. I'm like, that's kind of, it's kind of like the truth. I know I told you that three weeks ago and that was also the truth, but, um, I just want to start fresh with this new team and I don't want to like continue to be like battling intense pain all the time. And so then after a couple of phone calls between, I guess the management, they decided, eh, this guy's hurt. We don't want him. So I got released and that was the end of my career. And so it was a weird thing where it came back to bite me that I was like, not, saying that I was hurt, that I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine enough to pitch because I'm, and I truly believe you're either on, you're either on the disabled list and you're injured or you're healthy and you can choose which one you are. Uh, but you have to know the difference too, because if you're not healthy and you keep pitching, it'll, you'll end up on the disabled list and be really, really hurt. And, uh, it was just a different situation. When you go to a new team, you get a fresh start 
and you don't want to be like continuing to battle because I knew there was not going to be a, a reasonable expectation of improving my results, feeling the same way that I had been feeling. Like my results were not good and I didn't feel good. So if I'm going to start fresh with like a new ERA with a new team, why expect different results? I'll probably be another seven ERA pitcher if I'm just doing the same stuff, feeling the same way. So I wanted to get healthy, but you know, when I told them that now they're getting a disabled list pitcher instead of a healthy pitcher and that changes the deal. So my point in that story is sometimes that mentality can also bite you in that sense there. I believe that if I wasn't hurt, I was going to stay on the field, but in doing that and communicating that to my manager, um, he interpreted that as he's fine and that ended up being my undoing. So, you know, there's a, it's a thing where you don't want to make excuses and you don't want to let young players make excuses. And yet there's also a certain amount of pain you have to tolerate as a young player or as an old player. You watch the guys on TV, none of them are healthy. They're all battling something. They're all getting taped up, getting medication, getting whatever it is to stay healthy, to stay healthy enough to play on the field. You just don't know about it because, you know, most of them don't come out of the game. And you hear little things like tendonitis and those are actually big deals. Like tendonitis can be extremely painful. Uh, people kind of like scoff at it as something you should just be able to easily play through, but it's often not. Some of the worst pain that I pitched through was tendonitis in my shoulder, which ended my career, and also in my elbow. Uh, one year when I was healthy and pitching well, but not hurt enough to need a surgery or go on the DL. So tendonitis can be a real serious thing, but moral of the story is uh, it's hard to know as a player when to say, take me out of the game, and when to say, keep me in the game. And if you're staying in the game, does anyone else really need the information that you're not 100%? And a lot of times the answer is no. Um, if it's something where you, uh, it might get worse and fester and become a real injury, then people need to know about it, and you need to come out. If it's not, like, hey, I feel a little bit sick today. I don't feel great. You know, I didn't get a good night's sleep, or I, like, kind of tweaked my back, but I'm fine, like sleeping or whatever it was. Uh, but I'm fine to play. Then if you're fine to play, then you have to play well. You can't play and no one gives you a chance to play 90%. That's, that's my point is if you have an issue that affects your ability to play full speed, then you have to either play at full speed or come out of the game. And if you can't come out of the game, then you have to play at full speed. If you can't play at full speed, then come out of the game. But there isn't that in between where it's like, oh, sorry, I was hurt or I wasn't feeling well. I've been kind of sick. So that's why I didn't get to that ground ball. Or that's why I didn't catch that routine fly ball. Or that's why I gave up six runs. It's like, no, no. You either come out, of the, you come out of the game if you can't play to your potential or you play to your potential. Those are the only real two options in sports. And again, the tolerance for that and the funnel of that gets uh, stronger as you go up. So that's all I got, I think, today on excuses and self-handicapping. And I've talked about that stuff in the past, but it's important to reiterate because a lot of people it just takes time to have that mentality sink in because again, the standard you want to live by when you're a young player is a standard that you're going to be held to when you're an old player. Again, when you're an older player, they don't care if you have little things that aren't going to hurt you, but are going to impact your performance. It's either, can you play or can you not? And then the thing I want to talk about now is basically the importance of routine, which I think everyone sort of has, some kind of understanding like I think routines really trendy and doing the same thing every day is I think somewhat known to be important but I don't think people realize how important it is and really what the implication of it is for a baseball player so for a baseball player 
So for example, I do lessons and I teach the same four drills to almost every pitching lessons kid that I have. And for softball players that I work with and they're throwing, I teach the same three or four drills to them. Now there's other drills that I teach to some and not others, but there's a core couple of drills that I teach to everybody. Same goes for hitting, same goes to catching. Uh, there's a, there's a core thing. There's a, a foundation of things you have to do. Again, the fundamentals that you need to do to be good. So the couple drills that I teach to almost everybody are fundamental in the sense that they're going to teach you the big bunch of things that every pitcher needs more of, or if they have them, they need to maintain that because they can easily lose and get off track. So, you know, as a hitter, there are certain things in your swing that are absolute that every hitter does the archetypes, the checklists, whatever you want to call it, the checkpoints, same thing with a pitcher. And so pregame routines and postgame routines and your weekly routine and your throwing routine and your batting to your routine, and your BP routine, they needn't be very complicated. They needn't be very complex. They don't have to have tons of drills. They don't need to be fancy. They really just need to be consistent and they need to consistently get better and better and better in the fine little details. So I have, again, in the, in the four drills that our players always do every time they touch a ball for the first time in a day, I get really irritated when players don't do them right, especially months down the road when they've been doing these drills for a long period of time when they can't do them properly with all like the seven or eight little details that, you know, hey, the shoulder has to be here, toe has to be here, knee has to be here, stride has to be here, whatever it is, all those little details matter because they're going to accumulate over the long term. And so good routines, whether it's pregame or postgame or during the game in your warmups, whatever it is, they ensure, number one, consistent performance, but number two, they ensure that you're consistently refining your mechanics, whether it's hitting or swinging or whatever. And number three, they ensure that you're feeling for those refinements. The number one thing, I think, with uh, pitchers that don't throw strikes in proportion to how athletic they are or the, how good their mechanics look is a lack of feel. And feel is developed when you're playing catch and when you have time to really think and internalize how the ball comes off your hand, where your front shoulder is in space, where your back leg is in space, where everything fits together in the course of this thing called your, your throwing delivery, your pitching delivery. And when you just go through the motions and you're talking with your, your partner and you're just like chucking the ball and you're just trying to get warm or whatever it is, or you think you're going through the drills, but you're not actually present enough and feeling them and all that stuff, then it ends up being a waste and results on the mound don't continually get better. If you're always going through a routine where you're focused on, okay, in my swing, I'm trying to make sure my front foot gets down, or I'm trying to make sure my hands don't go first. I'm trying to make sure I don't lose control of my barrel or whatever it is. If you're not always focused on doing those things a little bit better, or at least doing them the same every time you hit a ball fatigue, every time you take a swing in BP, or if you're not good at going the opposite way, every time in BP, starting off, going the opposite way, staying through the ball, whatever it is. If you're not constantly working on those things, they don't really get better over time. And it seems like, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that coach. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it just takes a lot of reinforcement for them to really get how important the routine is. Because you're not going to change that stuff in the bat. I don't coach kids when they're at bat. I don't say, hey, remember to keep your shoulder in. I do it once in a while, very rarely. But I also just like don't want to fill their head with whatever. Maybe it would help a little bit. I don't know. 
But in general, pretty much when they're at bat or they're on the mound, that's the time where they're like pretty much set and they're going to do what they're capable of doing. And they're and that's going to be that. Obviously, when I have a mound visit, we'll talk about a little couple of mechanical tweaks, but they're very just like small tweaks. They're mental things. They're visual things. They're just look down your shoulder a little longer. They're compete with the strike zone a little bit more. They're, you know, tug yourself downhill a little bit with your front side because everything's up or whatever it is. Finish. Don't guide the ball. Don't aim the ball. Don't try to miss bats. Don't try to, you know, shy away from contact. Those are all mental things, but those things don't get fixed in the game. They don't get as easily fixed in the bullpen. They get very easily fixed when the throwing, the playing catch routine gets a lot better. So if you can't feel those things when you're playing catch, if the ball's always going up and you're okay with it, or you're sporadic in catch and you're okay with it, or you're just not doing the drills right and you're okay with it, meaning you're not really fixing it or you're not actively focused and aware that it, gets, that it should be better than it is, then it's not going to be better on it game speed because everything that you want to have happen at game speed has to first show up in catch speed, in practice speed, whatever you want to call it. So for me, I get the most frustrated when kids over time don't know how to do the fundamentals that we've done every single day correctly, because that's just to me shows a lack of self-awareness, shows a lack of attention to detail. And it shows a sort of attitude that this isn't important. Only the game stuff is important. Whereas in reality, the catch stuff is what sets you up for success on the mound. You know, your bullpen sets you up for success on the mound. All the stuff that's not in the game prepares you to go out there and play like a robot and just do the things you know how to do automatically. And so when they're not done well in practice, they just don't get done. And it doesn't have to be a bunch of fancy stuff. It doesn't have to be new toys and shiny new tools and drills and all this weird, you know, it just needs to be really well done and thought through and felt through as an athlete. The better athletes should feel and make adjustments quicker. I see it all the time. Kids that come in for me for lessons that aren't great athletes, they take more lessons to make the adjustment that I want them to make. They take more throws to get in the position that I want them to get into. The great athletes, I say, hey, you're here, you need to be here. Or you're here, you need to be here. Or they see themselves on video once and say, see that? That's the problem. We need you to do, do it like this. And they get it like just like that. That's what it, being a good athlete is. They can say, oh, my arm is supposed to be here, not here. And they can just fix it. They can just, they have a connection with their mind and their body. They can visualize the change and then make that change happen. That's what being a good athlete is, among other qualities. But whether you're a good athlete or not, or you're, I shouldn't say good athlete or not. I say depending on the level of athleticism, athleticism that you possess, it still comes down to your focus. So the better athletes don't necessarily internalize things that their coaches tell them or the things that they need to do or feel their mechanics, feel their delivery, and feel for change and say, oh, that's how it feels when I leave a ball up. That's how it feels when I throw it in the dirt. It's somewhere in between. I've felt balls, you know, there's, that's how it feels when the ball goes down the middle. I need to find the balance between those two. Good athletes like can figure that out. <coughs> Doing a lot of sneezing on this episode, but it only they only get to figure that out when they have this mind-body connection. And then when they take that sort of feel into their practice sessions, into their bullpens, and they're constantly not okay with leaving the ball up in practice or throwing sloppy changeups or slidery curveballs or or loopy sliders in practice, all that stuff. So they get better when you have a really intense focus on the details and feeling your mechanics and 
having a set routine. So players make consistent progress when they always stick to their guns, when they're always focused on outcomes, when they're always focused on how things feel, when they're internalizing all the different set, uh, different stimuli that comes in, when they're constantly thinking through their pre-pitch checklist, and they're constantly you know, trying to have some awareness of the game situation and how they should react to it. That's how players consistently get better. And so for me, you know, like as far as like coaching goes, you try to put players in a position to succeed. You try to put them in a position where they can get the best out of themselves. And uh, really it just starts with being almost like a drill sergeant with the routine, you know, and it, there's a balance because you want to give them some autonomy. You don't want to be barking at them constantly and you want to watch them and see how they process. How do they play catch? You know, you can't yell at a kid every time he's not doing a drill perfectly, but at the same time, if you enable it, it doesn't get better over time. And there's a certain just a, sort of a standard that everyone should hold, whether it's among teammates or coach to player, that this is how it needs to be done. And if you're not doing it this way, then you're wasting your time and you're wasting everyone else's time. But really just like I think the biggest thing, and I see it with the players that continue to have like an upward progression, and then I don't see it with the players who have a sort of a stagnant progression or the players that sort of get worse over time, uh, it's a consistency in their routine. So underrated thing make sure you're focused on it and if you're not as focused as you could be try to step it up and really internalize what you're doing why you're doing it and what the outcomes are that you're looking for all right well that's it for this episode of dear baseball gods this was number 49 so we're closing on the big 5-0 um, and again i just appreciate you being here so feel free to leave me a return on uh, review on itunes uh, if you want to sponsor the show, you can do so on my Patreon page. And again, there's some great stuff on there. There's some swag, t-shirts, uh, mugs. Um, you can score a video call with me really easily on that for a lower than my normal rate. Any of that stuff. So if you feel like sponsoring the show or my YouTube videos, any of that, you know, jump on there. And lastly, if you know a coach or a parent or a player who could benefit from listening to my podcast, watching my YouTube videos, um, I always appreciate you spreading the word. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next, next week on Tier Baseball Guides.